Chapter Two, Part Two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Two, Part Two. "'Oh, let us not be forever calculating, devising, and plotting for the future,' said Mr. Pecksniff, smiling more and more and looking at the fire, as a man might who was cracking a joke with it. "'I am weary of such arts. If our inclinations are but good and open-hearted, let us gratify them boldly, though they bring upon us loss instead of profit. Eh, Charity?' Glancing towards his daughters for the first time since he had begun these reflections, and seeing that they both smiled, Mr. Pecksniff eyed them for an instant so jocosely, though still with a kind of saintly waggishness, that the younger one was moved to sit upon his knee forthwith, put her fair arms round his neck, and kiss him twenty times. During the whole of this affectionate display she laughed to a most immoderate extent, in which hilarious indulgence even the prudent cherry joined. "'Tut, tut,' said Mr. Pecksniff, pushing his latest-born away, and running his fingers through his hair as he resumed his tranquil face. "'What folly is this? Let us take heed how we laugh without reason, lest we cry with it. What is the domestic news since yesterday? John Westlock is gone, I hope.' "'Indeed, no,' said Charity. "'And why not?' returned her father. "'His term expired yesterday, and his box was packed. I know, for I saw it in the morning standing in the hall.' "'He slept last night at the Dragon,' returned the young lady, "'and had Mr. Pinch to dine with him. "'They spent the evening together, "'and Mr. Pinch was not home till very late. "'And when I saw him on the stairs this morning, Pa,' said Mercy, "'with her usual sprightliness, "'he looked, oh, goodness, such a monster, "'with his face all manner of colours, "'and his eyes as dull as if they had been boiled, "'and his head aching dreadfully, I am sure, from the look of it, and his clothes smelling, oh, it's impossible to say how strong. Oh, here the young lady shuddered of smoke and punch. Now I think, said Mr. Pecksniff, with his accustomed gentleness, though still with the air of one who suffered under injury without complaint, I think Mr. Pinch might have done better than choose for his companion one who at the close of a long intercourse had endeavoured, as he knew, to wound my feelings. I am not quite sure that this was delicate in Mr. Pinch. I am not quite sure that this was kind in Mr. Pinch. I will go further and say I am not quite sure that this was even ordinarily grateful in Mr. Pinch. But what can anyone expect from Mr. Pinch? cried Charity, with as strong and scornful an emphasis on the name, as if it would have given her unspeakable pleasure to express it in an acted charade on the calf of that gentleman's leg. "'Ay, ay,' returned her father, raising his hand mildly. "'It is very well to say what can we expect from Mr. Pinch. "'But Mr. Pinch is a fellow-creature, my dear. "'Mr. Pinch is an item in the vast total of humanity, my love, "'and we have a right, it is our duty, "'to expect in Mr. Pinch some development of those better qualities, "'the possession of which in our own persons inspires our humble self-respect. "'No,' continued Mr. Pecksniff, "'No, heaven forbid that I should say nothing can be expected from Mr. Pinch, "'or that I should say nothing can be expected from any man alive, "'even the most degraded, which Mr. Pinch is not. "'No, really. 
"'But Mr. Pinch has disappointed me. "'He has hurt me. "'I think a little the worse of him on this account, "'but not of human nature. "'Oh, no, no.' "'Hark,' said Miss Charity, holding up her finger, "'as a gentle rap was heard at the street door. "'There is the creature. "'Now mark my words, he has come back with John Westlock for his box, "'and is going to help him to take it to the mail. "'Only mark my words, if that isn't his intention.' Even as she spoke, the box appeared to be in progress of conveyance from the house, but after a brief murmuring of question and answer, it was put down again, and somebody knocked at the parlour door. "'Come in!' cried Mr. Pecksniff, not severely, only virtuously. "'Come in!' An ungainly, awkward-looking man, extremely short-sighted and prematurely bald, availed himself of this permission— and seeing that Mr. Pecksniff sat with his back towards him, gazing at the fire, stood hesitating with the door in his hand. He was far from handsome, certainly, and was dressed in a snuff-coloured suit of an uncouth make at the best, which, being shrunk with long wear, was twisted and tortured into all kinds of odd shapes. But notwithstanding his attire and his clumsy figure, which a great stoop in his shoulders and a ludicrous habit he had of thrusting his head forward, by no means redeemed, one would not have been disposed, unless Mr. Pecksniff said so, to consider him a bad fellow by any means. He was perhaps about thirty, but he might have been almost any age between sixteen and sixty, being one of those strange creatures who never decline into an ancient appearance, but look their oldest when they are very young, and get it over at once." Keeping his hand upon the lock of the door, he glanced from Mr. Pecksniff to Mercy, from Mercy to Charity, and from Charity to Mr. Pecksniff again, several times. But the young ladies, being as intent upon the fire as their father was, and neither of the three taking any notice of him, he was fain to say at last, "'Oh, I beg your pardon, Mr. Pecksniff, I beg your pardon for intruding, but—' "'No intrusion, Mr. Pinch,' said that gentleman very sweetly, but without looking round. "'Pray be seated, Mr. Pinch. Have the goodness to shut the door, Mr. Pinch, if you please.' "'Certainly, sir,' said Pinch, not doing so, however, but holding it rather wider open than before, and beckoning nervously to somebody without. "'Mr. Westlock, sir, hearing that you were come home—'Mr. Pinch! Mr. Pinch!' said Pecksniff, wheeling his chair about and looking at him with an aspect of the deepest melancholy. "'I did not expect this from you.' "'I have not deserved this from you.' "'No, but upon my word, sir,' urged Pinch. "'The less you say, Mr. Pinch,' interposed the other, "'the better. "'I utter no complaint. "'Make no defence.' "'No, but do have the goodness, sir,' cried Pinch, with great earnestness. "'If you please, Mr. Westlock, sir, going away for good and all, "'wishes to leave none but friends behind him. "'Mr. Westlock and you, sir, had a little difference the other day. "'You have had many little differences.' "'Little differences!' cried Charity. "'Little differences!' echoed Mercy. "'My loves!' said Mr. Pecksniff, with the same serene upraising of his hand. "'My dears!' After a solemn pause he meekly bowed to Mr. Pinch, as who should say, "'Proceed!' But Mr. Pinch was so very much at a loss how to resume, and looked so helplessly at the two Miss Pecksniffs, that the conversation would most probably have terminated there, if a good-looking youth— newly arrived at man's estate, had not stepped forward from the doorway, and taken up the thread of the discourse. "'Come, Mr. Pecksniff,' he said with a smile, "'don't let there be any ill-blood between us, pray. 
I am sorry we have ever differed, and extremely sorry I have ever given you offence. Bear me no ill-will at parting, sir.' "'I bear,' answered Mr. Pecksniff mildly, "'no ill-will to any man on earth.' "'I told you he didn't,' said Pinch, in an undertone. "'I knew he didn't. He always says he don't. "'Then you will shake hands, sir?' cried Westlock, advancing a step or two, "'and bespeaking Mr. Pinch's close attention by a glance. "'Umph!' said Mr. Pecksniff, in his most winning tone. "'You will shake hands, sir?' "'No, John,' said Mr. Pecksniff, with a calmness quite ethereal. "'No, I will not shake hands, John. I have forgiven you. I had already forgiven you, even before you ceased to reproach and taunt me. I have embraced you in the spirit, John, which is better than shaking hands.' "'Pinch,' said the youth, turning towards him with a hearty disgust of his late master, "'what did I tell you?' Poor Pinch looked down uneasily at Mr. Pecksniff, whose eye was fixed upon him as it had been from the first, and looking up at the ceiling again made no reply. "'As to your forgiveness, Mr. Pecksniff,' said the youth, "'I'll not have it upon such terms. I won't be forgiven.' "'Won't you, John?' retorted Mr. Pecksniff with a smile. "'You must. You can't help it. Forgiveness is a high quality, an exalted virtue, far above your control or influence, John. I will forgive you. You cannot move me to remember any wrong you have ever done me, John. Wrong? cried the other, with all the heat and impetuosity of his age. Here's a pretty fellow. Wrong? Wrong I have done him. He'll not even remember the five hundred pounds he had with me under false pretenses, or the seventy pounds a year for board and lodging that would have been dear at seventeen. Here's a martyr. Money, John, said Mr. Pecksniff, is the root of all evil. I grieve to see that it is already bearing evil fruit in you, but I will not remember its existence. I will not even remember the conduct of that misguided person, and here, although he spoke like one at peace with all the world, he used an emphasis that plainly said, I have my eye upon the rascal now. That misguided person who has brought you here to-night, seeking to disturb, it is a happiness to say in vain, the heart's repose and peace of one who would have shed his dearest blood to serve him. The voice of Mr. Pecksniff trembled as he spoke, and sobs were heard from his daughters. Sounds floated on the air, moreover, as if two spirit voices had exclaimed, One, beast, the other, savage, Forgiveness, said Mr. Pecksniff, entire and pure forgiveness is not incompatible with a wounded heart. Perchance, when the heart is wounded, it becomes a greater virtue. With my breast still wrung and grieved to its inmost core by the ingratitude of that person, I am proud and glad to say that I forgive him. Nay, I beg, cried Mr. Pecksniff, raising his voice, as Pinch appeared about to speak, I beg that individual not to offer a remark. He will truly oblige me by not uttering one word just now. I am not sure that I am equal to the trial. In a very short space of time I shall have sufficient fortitude, I trust, to converse with him as if these events had never happened. But not, said Mr. Pecksniff, turning round again towards the fire and waving his hand in the direction of the door, not now. Bah! cried John Westlock, with the utmost disgust and disdain the monosyllable is capable of expressing. "'Ladies, good evening. Come, Pinch, it's not worth thinking of. I was right, and you were wrong. That's small matter. You'll be wiser another time.' 
So saying, he clapped that dejected companion on the shoulder, turned upon his heel, and walked out into the passage, whither poor Mr. Pinch, after lingering irresolutely in the parlour for a few seconds, expressing in his countenance the deepest mental misery and gloom, followed him. Then they took up the box between them, and sallied out to meet the mail. That fleet conveyance passed every night the corner of a lane at some distance, towards which point they bent their steps. For some minutes they walked along in silence, until at length young Westlock burst into a loud laugh, and at intervals into another and another. Still there was no response from his companion. "'I'll tell you what, Pinch,' he said abruptly, after another lengthened silence, "'you haven't half enough of the devil in you. Half enough. You haven't any.' "'Well,' said Pinch, with a sigh, "'I don't know, I'm sure. It's compliment to say so. If I haven't, I suppose, I'm all the better for it.' "'All the better?' repeated his companion tartly. "'All the worse, you mean to say.' "'And yet,' said Pinch, pursuing his own thoughts, and not this last remark on the part of his friend, "'I must have a good deal of what you call the devil in me, too, or how could I make Pecksniff so uncomfortable? I wouldn't have occasioned him so much distress.' "'Don't laugh, please. "'For a mine of money, and heaven knows I could find good use for it, too, John. "'How grieved he was!' "'He grieved,' returned the other. "'Why, didn't you observe that the tears were almost starting out of his eyes?' cried Pinch. "'Bless my soul, John, is it nothing to see a man move to that extent, and no one's self to be the cause? "'And did you hear him say that he could have shed his blood for me?' "'Do you want any blood shed for you?' returned his friend, with considerable irritation. "'Does he shed anything for you that you do want? "'Does he shed employment for you, instruction for you, pocket-money for you? "'Does he shed even legs of mutton for you in any decent proportion to potatoes and garden stuff?' "'I am afraid,' said Pinch, sighing again, "'that I am a great eater. "'I can't disguise from myself that I'm a great eater. "'Now you know that, John.' "'You a great eater,' retorted his companion, with no less indignation than before. "'How do you know you are?' There appeared to be forcible matter in this inquiry, for Mr. Pinch only repeated in an undertone that he had a strong misgiving on the subject, and that he greatly feared he was. "'Besides, whether I am or no,' he added, "'that has little or nothing to do with his thinking me ungrateful. "'John, there is scarcely a sin in the world that is in my eyes such a crying one as ingratitude.' "'and when he taxes me with that, and believes me to be guilty of it, "'he makes me miserable and wretched.' "'Do you think he don't know that?' returned the other scornfully. "'But come, Pinch, before I say anything more to you, "'just run over the reasons you have for being grateful to him at all, will you? "'Change hands first, for the box is heavy. "'That'll do. Now, go on.' "'In the first place,' said Pinch, "'he took me as his pupil for much less than he asked. "'Well,' rejoined his friend, perfectly unmoved by this instance of generosity, "'what in the second place?' "'What in the second place?' cried Pinch, in a sort of desperation. "'Why, everything in the second place. "'My poor old grandmother died happy to think that she had put me with such an excellent man. "'I have grown up in his house. "'I am in his confidence. "'I am his assistant. "'He allows me a salary. "'When his business improves, my prospects are to improve, too.' All this, and a great deal more, is in the second place. And in the very prologue and preface to the first place, John, you must consider this, which nobody knows better than I, that I was born for much plainer and poorer things. 
that I am not a good hand for his kind of business, and have no talent for it, or indeed for anything else but odds and ends that are of no use or service to anybody. He said this with so much earnestness, and in a tone so full of feeling, that his companion instinctively changed his manner as he sat down on the box, they had by this time reached the finger-post at the end of the lane, motioned him to sit down beside him, and laid his hand upon his shoulder. "'I believe you are one of the best fellows in the world,' he said, Tom Pinch. "'Not at all,' rejoined Tom. "'If you only knew Pecksniff as well as I do, you might say it of him, indeed, and say it truly.' "'I'll say anything of him you like,' returned the other, and not another word to his disparagement. "'It's for my sake, then, not his, I am afraid,' said Pinch, shaking his head gravely. "'For whose you please, Tom, so that it does please you. "'Oh, he's a famous fellow. "'He never scraped and clawed into his pouch all your poor grandmother's hard savings. "'She was a housekeeper, wasn't she, Tom?' "'Yes,' said Mr. Pinch, nursing one of his large knees and nodding his head. "'A gentleman's housekeeper.' He never scraped and clawed into his pouch all her hard savings, dazzling her with prospects of your happiness and advancement, which he knew, and no man better, never would be realized. He never speculated and traded on her pride in you and her having educated you, and on her desire that you at least should live to be a gentleman. Not he, Tom. No, said Tom, looking into his friend's face as if he were a little doubtful of his meaning. Of course not. "'So I say,' returned the youth, "'of course he never did. "'He didn't take less than he had asked, "'because that less was all she had, "'and more than he expected. "'Not he, Tom. "'He doesn't keep you as his assistant "'because you are of any use to him, "'because your wonderful faith in his pretensions "'is of inestimable service in all his mean disputes, "'because your honesty reflects honesty on him, "'because you are wandering about this little place "'all your spare hours "'Reading in ancient books and foreign tongues gets noised abroad, even as far as Salisbury, "'making of him Pecksniff the master, a man of learning and of vast importance. "'He gets no credit from you, Tom, not he.' "'Why, of course he don't,' said Pinch, gazing at his friend with a more troubled aspect than before. "'Pecksniff get credit from me. Well!' "'Don't I say that it's ridiculous?' rejoined the other, "'even to think of such a thing. "'Why, it's madness!' said Tom. Madness, returned young Westlock. Certainly it's madness. Who but a madman would suppose he cares to hear it said on Sundays that the volunteer who plays the organ in the church and practices on summer evenings in the dark is Mr. Pecksniff's young man, eh, Tom? Who but a madman would suppose it is the game of such a man as he to have his name in everybody's mouth connected with the thousand useless odds and ends you do and which, of course, he taught you, eh, Tom? Who but a madman would suppose you advertised him hereabouts much cheaper and much better than a chalker on the walls could, eh, Tom? As well might one suppose that he doesn't on all occasions pour out his whole heart and soul to you, that he doesn't make you a very liberal and indeed rather an extravagant allowance, or to be more wild and monstrous still, if that be possible, as well might one suppose, and here, at every word, he struck him lightly on the breast, that Pecksniff traded in your nature, and that your nature was to be timid and distrustful of yourself, and trustful of all other men, but most of all of him who least deserves it. There would be madness, Tom. Mr. Pinch had listened to all this with looks of bewilderment, which seemed to be in part occasioned by the matter of his companion's speech, 
and in part by his rapid and vehement manner. Now that he had come to a close, he drew a very long breath, and gazing wistfully in his face, as if he were unable to settle in his own mind what expression it wore, and were desirous to draw from it as good a clue to his real meaning as it was possible to obtain in the dark, was about to answer, when the sound of the mail guard's horn came cheerily upon their ears, putting an immediate end to the conference, greatly as it seemed to the satisfaction of the younger man, who jumped up briskly and gave his hand to his companion. "'Both hands, Tom. I shall write to you from London, mind.' "'Yes,' said Pinch. "'Yes, do, please. "'Good-bye, good-bye. I can hardly believe you're going. "'It seems now but yesterday that you came. "'Good-bye, my dear old fellow.' John Westlock returned his parting words with no less heartiness of manner, and sprung up to his seat upon the roof. Off went the mail at a canter down the dark road, the lamps gleaming brightly, and the horn awakening all the echoes far and wide. "'Go your ways,' said Pinch, apostrophizing the coach. "'I can hardly persuade myself but you're alive, and are some great monster who visits this place at certain intervals to bear my friends away into the world. You're more exulting and rampant than usual to-night, I think, and you may well crow over your prize, for he is a fine lad, an ingenuous lad, and has but one fault that I know of. He don't mean it, but he is most cruelly unjust to Pecksniff. End of chapter 2